Hasn't our worship been particularly worshipful this morning? I got a uh, up-close and personal version of it with a trumpet in my ear. So, uh, beautiful though. But if anything happens on this side of the room, I'm not going to be able to hear you. So, um, sorry about that. Um, If you would, turn your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9. And I would ask you to uh, keep your Bibles open this morning. We're going to go to several places in the scripture. Um, so this is going to be a little bit of a Bible drill, sort of. Zechariah chapter 9, and we'll be ver- reading verses 9 and 10. And if you're able, would you stand? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the word of God. Thank you. Be seated. Let me pray for us. Lord, you know your word is ultimately the most important truth we can have in our lives. And Lord, we need your spirit now to take it to apply it into our lives, to open our ears, Lord, our, our hearts to, uh, to your teaching this morning. Just pray, Father, that this would not be in vain, that it would always be uh, go out and produce fruit in your good timing. So, Lord, send your spirit among us now to do his good work. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today is, of course, Palm Sunday. It's a great day, a day of celebration. We join with literally millions of other Christians all over the world, presently and in the past, to celebrate the coming of our Lord and Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Now, his coming was predicted a long time ago, all the way back in the Old Testament. We see his coming in our passage today that we just read. It's predicted, and elsewhere. We also see in the Gospels of the New Testament where his coming is documented for us. We see that he came and that how he came. And then in books like the book of Revelation, we see how he might come again, how he's predicted to come again uh, to us, and we have hope with that. But really, the whole Bible is about the coming of the King, Jesus What kind of king is he? How can we 21st century people, how do we understand what it means to be ruled by a king? And then what difference does his reign make, really make, in your life and in my life today? These are some of the questions that we hope to deal with today. And I hope you'll search your heart and begin to understand what what a difference this king makes in your life. I think we have a difficult time in our culture understanding what it means to be ruled by an absolute ruler. 
Uh, we don't have a monarch. And uh, the closest thing we have to a monarch is a president, and that's a long way from a king. Most of us have lowered expectations of that position. But um, the people of the Bible understood absolute rule. They understood it very well. Uh, in fact, that's all they ever had, really, all the way back to the beginning from their first king was an absolute ruler. And they only rarely experienced an absolute ruler that was good, though. Only rarely did they experience a good ruler. Well, as we're going to see, Jesus' kingship is both absolute and absolutely good. Today I want to try to, try to address this kingship as we look briefly at three scriptural windows of the biblical coming king. In each of these pictures, I want us to come to know what kind of king it is that we're serving. When we see him as he's revealed himself in scripture, we will begin to react in the same way as the peoples of the Bible reacted. We will rejoice, we will sing hosannas to him, and we will in fact lay down our lives before him. We will wait with joyful anticipation of his coming and justice and order that he will bring when he returns. We will understand how he is totally unlike any ruler we have ever experienced. A ruler who is altogether righteous, gentle, and good. And we will come to see what a difference a king like this makes in our lives. Well, in our first window, we come into, uh, we can see the coming king in this text that we just read from Zechariah. Let me give you a little uh, context and a little bit of teaching about how to look at prophecy scripture. Uh, often it's helpful to view prof prophetic scripture as if we're looking at a mountain range. And in the mountain range, of course, we've got close mountains, and we've got mountains that are farther away. Well, in this prophecy, Zechariah is prophesying to the people of his time. But he's also prophesying for people later down the road, and ultimately, us. The setting of this particular oracle is that it's post-exilic, meaning that the people of Israel had begun to return to the promised land. If you, have your, if you know your Bible history, you know that uh, the, the kingdom of Judah was deported to the land of Babylon, and uh, for about 70 years, they um, had to stay there under captivity, and uh, the uh, Babylonians were ultimately conquered by the Persians. And then the Persian rulers allowed, began to allow the uh, Israelites to return in groups. The first group came back to build the wall and parts of the city. And then this group that Zechariah is addressing here came back to build the temple. So it was a time of both hope and frustration for the people. One of the commentators that I, that I read said this about this time. It said that the people of this time were struggling financially. They were frustrated politically, and they were divided socially. Does that sound like us? <laughs> they needed theological spectacles to see and to view the events of their day, the difficult circumstances of their lives. Called to address this need, Zechariah brought a theological message that was centered thematically on two things. Two things, the renewal of God's people and the establishment of God's kingdom. The renewal of God's people and the establishment of God's kingdom. In fact, the foundational purpose of the book of Zechariah was to lift the eyes 
the people of God so that they could see beyond their discouraging circumstances and see the bigger picture of God's coming kingdom. You see, Zechariah and God, through Zechariah, believed that their eyes could see the truth, if their eyes could see the truth, that God's kingdom was already prepared in heaven, then all their discouragement would melt away and they would find motivation to do what the Lord was calling them to do, namely, to rebuild the temple, to purge the social evils among themselves, and to order their lives around the priorities of God's coming kingdom and its king. But who is this king? Who is this king? The text gives us a few um, ideas about who this king is, specifically three I'm going to talk about in in verse 9 of this text. The first thing he says about this, this king is that he is righteous, which is unlike previous kings. Kings, uh, previous kings had mostly pursued their own agendas. Uh, they had uh, all, all been about preserving their own legacies, uh, promoting their own selves, surviving uh, in difficult times of uh, uh, social unrest. But this king was going to be a righteous king. Hear what Jeremiah 23 says about this righteous king and describes his righteousness. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So he's a righteous king. Well, what else does the verse tell us about who this Messiah king will be? It says that he will, have, will be a one as having salvation. Well, this, this term having salvation is passive. It means in the Hebrew that, that action has occurred on the king or on the Messiah here. He has been saved. He will have been saved. But he will bring with him, bring with him that salvation as evidence of his divine saving power. So he brings with him salvation. He brings with him the ability to save. So he's righteous. He has salvation. And then the last thing it says about him in this verse is that he's humble. He's humble. And he's riding on a colt, a colt of a donkey. Well, in this time, the people, in the people's minds, they probably would have seen an image of King David. King David often rode on a donkey in times of peace. And why was this? Well, it wasn't just King David. It was other kings in this time. Uh, Rode on donkeys because they were images of peace, and they rode on them during times of peace. And it was also a a sign of humility. Uh, Imagine if you're a a, a, a foreign king or an enemy king, and and you see your enemy riding up on a donkey. It doesn't inspire fear. As maybe a, a horse would be. It's kind of like riding a bicycle into battle versus a tank into battle. So, very clearly, he's humble. He's riding a donkey. So, he's righteous, he's have salvation, and he's humble. Three things that we know about this king that's predicted to us in uh, Zechariah. 
But how did his proclamation, how did this proclamation of this king, how did it motivate the people of Zechariah's time? Remember, they were discouraged. Uh, they were discouraged for a lot of reasons. They had lacked financial resources. They were harried by some of the enemies in the area. Uh, things were difficult for them. But how, how, how did this promise, how did this promise motivate them to be about their work? Well, we don't have time to really go into that too much, but really throughout the entire book of Zechariah, we see how they were motivated. Beginning in chapter 1, it says, God, God says through Zechariah that the time of mercy and restoration had now come and that the time for punishment was now over. If you remember, they had spent 70 years or so in this foreign land languishing, longing for their kingdom. And God says now the time for restoration was here. What a great promise. Then in chapter 2, he promises to dwell among his people again. God is going to dwell among his people again. And this is a big deal. The Israelites were used to God being with them, whether it be in the tabernacle, in the cloud, uh, in the temple. And uh, we, we, hear, we find here that it promises again in Zechariah that God will dwell with his people again. They didn't know how. They didn't know whether it would be in this new temple that they were building or in the form of the Holy Spirit. But God promises to dwell with his people again here in chapter 2. God will bless his people as they return to him in rebuilding the temple and obeying their covenant obligations and thanksgiving for his mercy. Then in verse 10, from where we just read, he promises that his rule will be from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. So the people of Zechariah's time, again, were under assault from some of the neighboring tribes, but God promises that, that the king shall rule from sea to sea. And finally, in chapter 9 of Zechariah, God promises that he will overcome all his opposition to his reign. He will bring peace, salvation, and blessing to his people. So right here in this, this book that was written to these folks who were discouraged uh, is great encouragement for them to continue on God, what God had called them to do. How, do they, how were they asked to respond here? How were they asked to respond? It gives us another uh, sight there in verse 9. They were asked to rejoice greatly and to shout aloud. We've done that uh, in song this morning. We've rejoiced and we've, shout, we've shouted in our song this morning um, that the righteous king is on his way. Uh, to believe and to remember that the promises are there, that he will come. Uh, this is where they were left uh, in this time. 550 years went by, not a short amount of time, 550 years went by, and this is how long it took for this prophecy to be fulfilled. The king came, ultimately, the Messiah Jesus, but how hard must it been to have rejoiced greatly and to shout aloud for 550 years for such a long-awaited coming? Well, we're in the same boat, aren't we? We too often find it difficult to rejoice at our king's second coming. But he has indeed come, and he will come again. Amen. You see, we can learn from the Israelites in this text that the promises and the anticipation of his coming motivated the people to rejoice and to be about their kingdom-building work. When the long-awaited king finally did come, 
Many people remembered the promises and responded as they were led to respond with rejoicing and with celebration. Let's look at the second window of Jesus' coming. And if you have your Bibles open, turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, and we'll start with verse 7. This is the account of the triumphal entry. Matthew 21, verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Well, this triumphal entry account is a very important account. Not just because it's in the Bible, but because it's in all four Gospels. Jesus comes into Jerusalem seated on this donkey, which was an Old Testament, if you remember, an Old Testament symbol of royalty, peace, and humility. But Colossians 1.20 tells us that the peace that Jesus brought in his first coming here is not, was brought through the blood of the cross, not a political peace, but was a peace between God and man. Let me say that again. The peace that he brings is through the blood of the cross, according to Colossians 1.20. Not a political peace, but a peace between God and man. Well, how do the people react? They cry out, Hosanna, Hosannas, which literally means save now. A loud exclamation of joy over their long-promised Messiah King. They declare him in this passage to be the son of David a reference to his kingship along the line of David and according to the biblical prophetic teachings of the coming king. They cry out from Psalm 118, which we just read from in our call to worship. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Well, these people knew their scriptures, didn't they? They knew what they were looking at. Uh, They knew how they were to react at the coming Messiah. And they sang the psalm, uh, this hosannas to the king. But did all the people welcome Jesus? Apparently not, but many did. But some did not. John's account in 12, 13 says that they actually declared him to be the king of Israel. However, some people answered the question of who Jesus was by declaring him a prophet instead of a king in this passage. At least some people had missed the point of this careful, careful fulfillment of Scripture. And while it is true that Jesus was a prophet, the point of this narrative is his public declaration of his long-awaited kingship. Up to this point, His kingship was not public. Here his intent was a carefully orchestrated pronouncement of his status as king of Israel. In fact, 
his response in the, in the book of Luke to those who would silence the crowd's declaration of his kingship was that the stones themselves would cry out and testify to his kingship if, he, if they were silent. This was indeed meant to be public for all to see and for all to hear. What kind of king was Jesus? In this passage, he's recognized to be from the land of Nazareth, a Jewish backcountry. In fact, to the eyes of the established world, he was really a nobody. Jesus himself in Matthew 11 declares himself to be gentle and lowly. He declared himself to be less kingly than it looked, gentle and lowly. But this declaration immediately follows a few verses earlier about his sovereignty over all of creation. Although he was all-powerful, he did not come at this time with the agenda of political conquest. He had come to throw off the yoke. He did not come to throw off the the yoke of Rome or to reestablish Israel's glory days. He really came for something much greater. He came to deliver his people from the penalty of their sins and to reconcile them to God. Paul describes this lowliness of Jesus elsewhere in Philippians 2 as one who took the form of a servant. His service was in the reconciling of a people to himself. His service was in perfectly obeying the law as a human. His service was in taking the weight of sin on himself then suffering the wrath of God on a cross of punishment. All of this in service to his people. All of this in service to us. Today, he invites you to surrender your life to him as well, if you haven't. By faith, to profess the Lord Jesus as your Lord and to accept his salvation as your own salvation. If you've, not done, if you've done that already and you are a loyal follower of King Jesus, then we are commanded to engage in kingdom building according to his ways of kingdom building. Not with weapons, not with political maneuvering, but with peaceful, peaceful service toward all people. Service in proclaiming the Lord throughout this world in word and by deeds of love. King Jesus' first coming is now over 2,000 years ago. How will we maintain our joy at the promise of his future return? And what difference in our lives does the promised returning king really make? Well, the answer comes from our abiding joy of the reality of his first coming. The abiding joy of the reality of his first coming. The promised Messiah who was anticipated in the Old Testament, has come, and he has established an eternal kingdom. This first coming was to bring his people everlasting peace with God and adoption into God's family. He came, gentle and lowly, to be a sin-bearer. He came to reconcile us into a new kingdom of his benevolent rule. Well, What kind of king will come again? What kind of king will we promise again uh, in the scripture? Let's look at the last window, the book of Revelation. If you'll turn with me into Revelation chapter 19, 
we'll see what this coming king is described as. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw the heaven, saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Our coming king will come as a warrior king riding a war horse, not a donkey. John draws attention to the manner of Jesus' coming by adding an exclamation point at the end of the first sentence. He says, look, this is an important detail. He is coming in power, riding a war horse. He, has come, he, he will come to make all things right by his absolute rule. His names are faithful and true, and he is called the word of God and named the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Have you noticed today that uh, for every issue that we have, and we have a lot of issues in politics and in just in life, that there's always two narratives, at least two narratives. There's a narrative A and there's a narrative B. And narrative A says one thing, and narrative B usually says the opposite thing. And just trying to understand what the culture is telling us sometimes becomes difficult. Who's telling the truth? Is it narrative A or is it narrative B? Very difficult sometimes to know what the truth is. Not so with Jesus. There's only one truth concerning him. He is the word of God. All that he says is true. There are no other opinions. His word is true and faithful. In righteousness, it says he'll come to judge and to make war on his enemies. He will execute God's wrath on all those who oppose, oppose his rule. Sounds like the prophecy of Zechariah where he will eliminate his enemies. His reign will be from sea to sea. and He will rule all creation as was prophesied. He will come and he will gather his people to himself for a great feast. What difference does this make to us today? How do we maintain a sense of anticipation, excitement, and joy at his promised return? Peter gives us an answer in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says this about Jesus. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, he's telling us to focus on the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. And not merely 
just our circumstances, which can be discouraging. This continuous discipline of focusing on the outcome of our faith produces joy that is inexpressible. You see, Christ has won the victory in our hearts now. He rules now over his reconciled people, and he ultimately rules over this world as well. But again, I ask you, what difference does King Jesus make in your life? It may be a helpful exercise to highlight what other people may believe concerning good and absolute rule. You see, some people, some people believe that everything in life is random. Everything in our world happens by chance. Others believe that the world only operates by cause and effect, where one action causes the next reaction and so forth. Well, neither of these beliefs bring any joy to our lives or cause us to have any confidence in our future, like the biblical kingship of Jesus Christ. You see, he is sovereign over every molecule in the universe. In each of these three pictures that we've just looked at, we're shown the same person. Of course, it is our Lord and our King, Jesus. In the first two scenes, he is depicted as humble and lowly, bringing a peaceful kingdom. In these two scenes, he is also a servant king who has come to purchase redemption for his people. But in the third scene, he is presented as a warrior king, riding a war horse and wielding a sword. In this last scene, he will bring justice and divine order to all of his creation. In each of these pictures, the prophesied king is coming. But you know what? God's people are not given a timetable for his coming, are we? Anticipation is always part of his coming. Maybe not a great example, but just as the best part of a meal is anticipating its presentation, there must be excitement about awaiting the return of our king. We must wait and joyfully anticipate it. As believers on the already come, first time side of history, we have the testimony of the New Testament that teaches us that Jesus has in fact come and tells us all about that. We now live in the light of his first coming, and that helps us to rejoice greatly in anticipation of his next coming. Because he came, we can now shout hosannas to our king. We look forward with great hope to his return, to when his glory will cover the entire earth. This is how King Jesus makes a difference in our lives today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we have just skipped through some scripture showing us who you are, how you rule, what you've done, and Lord, uh, I pray that that scripture would sink in, that we would uh, come to understand what a difference you make in our lives today, personally. This would be something supernatural, Lord, that your spirit is applying to us. Help us to rejoice to sing loudly, to praise you, especially as we celebrate you during this Holy Week, Lord. May your name be exalted in all that we do. 
Thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us, and thank you for the promises that we have through your scripture that carry us and motivate us to kingdom work today. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.